Hi and welcome to the Courageous Mama podcast. My day started up a very snowy steep hill and it's ended sitting by the fire chatting with you. This week we've got a really meaty conversation for you. We're talking about grief. What does that word say to you? We talk about all the different types of grief and the danger of quantifying other people's grief. So whether it's grief over losing a job or a guinea pig or a life partner or a phone, it's all loss. And being complex humans, we don't have a blueprint for how we should or shouldn't respond. But I thought it would be helpful to chat to a professional and get some inside track on how we can grieve healthily, no matter how big or small that grief is. But also how we can respond to the grief of others. In my experience, some people are empathetic, some people are sympathetic, and there's a difference. Some people disappear into the shadows, perhaps it feels awkward for them. And some, they try to make you feel better. Which one are you? Would you be interested to know the impact that those different reactions can have on people who are grieving? Well, we can throw some conjecture around, but I thought the topic deserves an expert. And Harriet Candlin has been on the podcast before. She has this weighty knowledge and a deep empathy for the individuality of people's experiences. But she's also a blast and we've become friends, firm friends over having done podcasts together. I'm looking forward to the day that I get to meet her. After our last podcast conversation, I told her that I felt I'd love to chat about grief, grief in general, grief in this strange season that we're in. It seems to be one of those areas that would be good to open up. And I asked her if it was something she'd be interested in talking about. And she said, oh yeah, I'm writing a book about it. Of course you are. So she's co-authoring with Catherine Bradshaw, but it's yet to present its name. So they're working with the title, You've Got to Be Kidding Me, I think is an open invitation to, what do you mean? I'll let you know when it launches. She's no stranger to grief herself. She's lost, well, frankly, too many family members. She lost her sister at the age of 22 and her brother-in-law. So she went from being a very involved and supporting aunt to co-parenting. And she and her sister co-parent the three boys together. And now they've even merged households, which includes her mother too. But she has experienced other forms of grief as well, which she will share along our conversation. So I started by asking her, what is grief? Oh gosh, what a good question. I think grief is the outward expression of internal loss, probably how I would say it. Because actually, interestingly, I've been going going through just changing some wording in one of my parenting manuals where it, we, we often say grief and loss. Everybody just says grief and loss. And I'm like, and I've been for 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 quite some time saying, that's not right because loss happens, and then we have grief. So I think grief is that bodily expression of the loss. It can be an internal expression, can't it? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's the when I say out, it's the outworking of it. However that's going to be whether it's an outward expression of it, because there are different ways to express grief. So um, you can have grief that is expressed through, you know, talking about it, crying, those physical 
very clearly obvious, but then also grief can be expressed in a whole lot of different ways. And often it can also be expressed in a physical way in, in terms of exercise and needing to, needing to be able to get rid of this energy somehow. And so lots of people do cycling or walking or running and those kinds of things which can be an expression of it when I work with couples I don't want to label you know identify them according to gender because it can be either way but more generally females would be expressing it through tears talking maybe something creative creatively and men often will express it through physical exercise and those kinds of things and when I've spoken to couples about it there's often this misunderstanding that you know I hear women say to me he's not really grieving you know but actually when you unpack it you know he's doing 40 kilometer bike rides and that's absolutely an outworking of that grief and I have absolutely had men say to me well I don't talk about it because I don't want to upset her it's just going to make her cry and I've had heard the women say, well, actually, that's okay. Crying is okay. Crying, and that is the outward expression of this, you know, that loss experience. I'm more concerned about the internalizing of it yeah. because the concern that I have around internalizing it and not expressing it in some kind of way is that actually it then leads to more concerning psychiatric problems such as depression, anxiety, you know, those kinds of things. But I want to say really clearly at the start that grief and depression are totally different things. Often they get sort of mixed up together. A friend of mine talked to me years ago and some close friends of hers, it was a very tragic accident. The whole family died in a small aircraft crash. And it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And all I could do was hold space for her and just allow her and give her permission to process that in whatever way that she needed to. And then about a year or so later, she talked to me and she said her husband is worried that she got depression, you know, because I'm still upset about, you know, this accident. And I said, it's been a year. This is like huge loss that you've had. And this is not depression. This is grief. They're very different things. And I think there's often this expectation that we will get over it. Mm -hmm. And we often hear people talk about resolving grief. And I, I really, really hate that expression because I don't even understand how you can resolve the loss of a relationship that with somebody or something, whatever it might be whatever it is that has gone now you don't actually resolve it you what I like to say you accommodate it you accommodate it into your life yeah. and so the losses that I have experienced in my life I have accommodated they're still absolutely there I still grieve um, and I am a slightly different person now or after each loss that people have we accommodate it into who we are now and we become slightly different people. No, that's so true. The only way you can resolve grief is to bring back the lost thing. That, that's Absolutely, not happening. 
I think it'd be really helpful to go through a few different forms of grief because quite often people use the word grief when they're talking about the loss of a person. Mm. But there are so many different types of grief. Mm. I'm just going to list a few and I'd love you to add to that. I mean, one of the key ones at the moment, of course, is we're all experiencing a collective grief, the grief of the mm. way we used to know life. Grief can be the loss of a person the loss of a life you know, the loss of a job, a change of circumstance. It can be a new community. Like when we left Melbourne and came to live in England, mm. I utterly grieved my mm. community. And I know that my 18 year old, when he leaves school at the end of the year, and I dearly hope he gets to go back before he leaves, <laughs> he will lose that community. It will never be the same again, even though he'll keep all of those friends. And then of course you've got divorce and you've got separation. And you don't necessarily grieve a parent just when they die. You might grieve them, the person they used to be when they were more active. Mm. And then, of course, there's the grief and loss of a, a pregnancy or a child. And I also mm. want to add to that the grief of a life stage. I was really conscious a couple of years yeah. ago. I wasn't a mother of little children anymore. I bet you could add to that lot. Would you Would you agree with all of those for a start? Oh, absolutely, I would. Um, in fact, when I moved to Australia, I got on the plane in, at Heathrow crying and sobbing and missing, I was going to miss the UK. And in that 24-hour experience on the planes, there was this transition. And then we got to Sydney and I looked out of the window and I still look at it in amazement as we flew in over Sydney and you see the Harbour Bridge and you see the Opera House. And I was so excited and I was so confused because 24 hours before I'd been bawling my eyes out. And then here I was so excited about being here, but absolutely. And these are the intangible ones. I mean, one of the ones that you said was interesting, you said the loss of a child or loss of a pregnancy. But actually, I've met, spent many years working with infertility. So there's actually not been yeah. a, a yeah. thing to lose, but it is. And it goes with that life stage, it, you know, all of those things, because I've actually got my own experience of infertility, even, you know, around that. So even though I've worked in it, I've actually lived it as well. Somebody said to me the other day, disappointment is a form of grief. And it was a lot. Oh, totally. And so there'll be people out there who think, well, I haven't lost a job but I always hoped I would do such and mm. such in my life and so that's really yeah. important in the mix isn't it yeah and I think I mean I often call it disenfranchised oh I do call it disenfranchised grief because actually it's a grief that's not recognized by society mm. and I think when there is a loss it's actually really important that there is a ritual around it there is something that we are able to do and when when you're living in a society that doesn't recognize or it's an invisible loss, then you actually don't have permission to express it. And so when somebody dies, there is, there is usually a ritual around it. And I think, it, you know, culturally, those, those changes between different cultures, but there's there's usually a ritual about it and it's public. People know it. People can express their sorrow and their sadness and their care and concern for you. But when it's an invisible loss, it's not public. It's people may not know it. And so also not only do people have their own private loss, 
but actually they, particularly with infertility, but there's, this goes across the board with many things, is that there's always a judgment from somebody else about it, or there's a question from somebody else about it. You know, with the job or the career or whatever, maybe the, that sense of disappointment because I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve, and yet here am I in a position where I'm able to you know, support myself, support my family or whatever it is, but it's not the dream that I had. It's the loss of a dream. And um, often people can find themselves being judged by that in a kind way. I think people are not being cruel in it, but it's like, well, you know, it's all right for you. You've got X, Y, and Z. You'll be, you'll be fine. You'll be right. I mean, in Australia, that's the term, you'll be right. And actually it doesn't acknowledge that loss of a dream. So in the grief work that I do with people, we start very much by saying, this is about the loss of a dream. Everybody's got their different experiences and some might be a very tangible loss, but for others, it might be an intangible loss, but it is whatever it is, it's that loss of a dream. It's the change in the story. Uh, it's not what I hoped for. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge it. We actually need to honour those losses. We need to honour the place that they have in our lives. The other thing that happens is when somebody is grieving, we are generally, as a society, Western culture, very uncomfortable with that. And so often what we want to do is make people feel okay. We want to make people feel better because we feel uncomfortable. But actually what is the most helpful and the most supportive is to be able to say to somebody, oh my goodness, I have no words. That is so awful, that is so hard, but I'm here, I'm, I'm with you. And I call that holding space. That's holding space for somebody. It's just to be with them in that devastation, desperation, whatever it might be. I think this is a really good thing to talk about, words. I mean, I heard an expression the other day which I found useful. The bigger the grief, the less words. Now we yeah. can't by somebody else's grief. Um, so that's a tricky one. But what we do mm. is we can see from their face mm. how they're holding it in that moment. And as you say, there are times when people want you to look on the bright side. I think that's one mm. of the things. Oh. Not helpful. No. 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 I love that, that you acknowledge that you've got no words. And then there are words that we can get wrong. And I think that's what some people are afraid of. Well, what have mm. I said? wrong thing and I remember when my dad died and this is this time last year how few people called and I do believe there is actually a sort of scientific word for a sort of collective standing back and I suspect they were gentle they were trying to give me space and of course I was surrounded by people who also had lost somebody but in those moments you actually need someone who's not grieving don't you we need to recognise that sometimes people need to be looked after, but they don't actually have the capacity at that point in time to ask for help mm. or to even know. So actually, you know, that somebody to come in and to say, I'm going to make you a cup of tea mm. and I'm just going to sit with you or let's just go for a drive or a walk or whatever. And we don't have to talk. It's mm. just being in the presence of somebody and somebody who says you don't need to do or be anything we can just be together I think is really really helpful 
we're called human beings, not human doings for a reason. And actually, we just need to be able to be with people. That said, there is also a case for being practical at times, isn't there? But I think one of the things that can be hard as a grieving person is when somebody says, let me know if there's anything I can do. Because it can be hard as a grieving person to come up with a list of chores, can't it? Absolutely. You're almost better to make a clumsy offer. Can I bring a meal round? Can I do some ironing for you? I know for me that I didn't have the wherewithal to think, I don't know, what, what could you do? And even if I did, I don't really know what they're offering. So I don't want to get that wrong either. So you just sort of discount it. I think it's better to make a silly offer. They'll read your heart. They'll read that you care. And that will bless them, even if they don't take you up on your offer. And of course, we've got COVID restrictions around that at the moment anyway. But there are things that we can offer. And they can only say no. No, that's right. And, and we need to not be putting people in that position. And also... If when we say, let me know if there's anything I can do, if perchance the person who is grieving does say, well, actually, I need X, Y, and Z, and you can't deliver, that's actually just, that's even worse. So I think to be clear on what you can deliver. Some friends of mine a few years ago, the husband was um, seriously ill, and we were all really expecting that he wasn't going to make it through to Christmas. You know, at some point, she was talking to me about how complicated all of the medical bills and things like that were and trying to get ahead around them. And I said, you know what, just give it to me and I will sort it out. So she just gave me this huge pile of bills and Medicare statements and all of that kind of stuff. And I just sorted them out. It's being able to listen in and what she was saying, which she said, I'm getting really overwhelmed with these all yeah. of this paperwork and I went I can do the paperwork you know so what can you do and other people will be able to do different stuff yeah and you were quite close to that friend so you could probably intuit their needs quite accurately or as you say listen in and see what they're needing I remember when I had an accident and a friend of mine just texted and said I'm at the supermarket is there anything you need and that was just such a mercy it was a very clear offer you know? yeah even if you can't even if you don't know what they need everybody needs bread everybody needs milk butter you know the basics like so even if you don't feel like you can ring you can actually just do it and leave it on the front doorstep with a note there's a lot we can do yes there are things that we can do let's talk again about making that phone call because it can feel like a brave thing to do can't it I have an expression and it goes like this you can take the phone off the hook but you can't make it ring. And of course, that was from back in the days when we had phones on hooks, didn't we? <laughs> Rather than just mobiles. But it comes to the same thing. And I stand by that expression because I think that sometimes people can be comforted from the fact that you tried to call. Even if they're not in the mood to talk at that particular moment, at least they know you tried. So can you give us a few words that could help us in those brave moments? So one of the things that I often do with people when they're experiencing some major event or a loss or whatever, is I'll send them a text message and I'll say, I've heard such and such, and I just want you to know that I am praying for you, I'm thinking about you, I love you heaps, you don't need to reply to this text message, but I just want you to know that you're, you're in my thoughts. So I always put that little thing which says you don't need to get back to me. Mm. People can feel obliged that they've got to ring all of these people back if there's messages or whatever. Our job is to actually make things easier and to let them know that we're there for them. And actually the things that we do that we think are the least important 
can sometimes be the most important to the person. The most important thing is to do or say something. You know, and I think people often say back, oh, go, I don't want to upset them. It's like, you're not going to upset them. They're already upset. You're not going to make it any worse. People can't be offended because you went up to them in the playground and said, look, I'm so sorry about your loss. Yeah. I mean, that is not a rude thing to say. In fact, too many people have said to me, I go to the playground and everybody avoids me. Absolutely. Awful. The- that is the worst. And once you get sort of, if you're walking alongside a person, I do think there are some things to avoid saying. But people will read your heart. I have a family member who experienced the most horrendous loss. I obviously won't say what it is. Mm. And it was, it, was, it was painful to watch. It was like watching a car crash in slow motion. Mm. And mm. the arms would get stretched out and they, and they were just mm. wanting that thing back so badly. They could almost sort of physically reach out and grab it. And I remember saying a couple of things. And when I came out of my mouth, I thought, no, no, that's not right. I'm not going to say that. And two things mm. I didn't to say were, one was, I understand, because I don't. Mm. I'm watching and I can see it's awful, but I am not in your shoes. And the other one is, I know, I know, I know. I don't mm. know. So I'm trying no. to bring those out of my vocabulary. And yes. It is just, I'm so sorry. This is just yeah. awful. Awful. Yeah, and we are, you're right, absolutely right. A lot of the time when I'm doing training of practitioners, I will say, erase the term I understand from your vocabulary because we don't, we absolutely don't. And when we have some vague understanding because we're humans and of humanity, but we have no idea. My experience of my sister dying was one event. My younger sister she has a different experience and I don't understand what her experience was and she doesn't understand mine even though it was our sister who died and so even within the same family we don't necessarily have the same experience and we don't understand either. But having said that what I don't want to do is then frighten people off from trying to say anything at all. No that's right. I think it's if you actually stick with the I have no words this is just awful and devastating if you just come from that empathic place of not trying to fix anything because I think what we want to do because we you know we often love these people or we care deeply for them Mm. is that we want to fix it we can't fix it there is no fixing this what is going to actually help is empathic connection it's time to stop the conversation and say that if you love connection if you love finding ways to parent better, to parent more effectively, to be closer to your children, to have their trust and to have their confidence and to have little one-pagers on interesting topics such as grief, such as how the brain works, the developing brain, then you will love Parenting for Life. People love it. The feedback is fantastic and it can be yours delivered to your door or delivered to a friend for £15. It's hardback it's beautiful, it makes a lovely coffee table book, it makes a lovely gift, you can put it by your bed, you will dig into it because one page will change your day. The link in the show notes will take you straight to the listener discount or go to thecourageousmama.com. And now back to my conversation with Harry. 
I will never forget this one particular situation. So if I'm doing some group work around, you know, loss and grief, then we sort of build on it. And the very first exercise we do is we ask people to just brainstorm a bit like we did at the beginning of this conversation, the types of losses there are. One man, balding man in the group said, my hair. And everybody laughed and it was, they didn't know each other. It was like the first sort of time they, they, they'd sort of met, you know, and he was quite funny with the way that he said it. And I said, but that is so hard. That just changes your identity, doesn't it? And everybody expects men to lose their hair. Nobody takes time to actually understand what that ex- experience is like for the man. They just kind of assume that it's going to be okay. And yet, if a woman was to lose her hair and had alopecia, there would be a lot of like oh my goodness me because it's not normal and yet we have to really make sure that we don't just assume that something's okay because it seems to be and I'm using inverted commas a normal thing yeah and that comes back to the size of grief doesn't it I remember back to when I had my ectopic pregnancies Mm. and I found that really tough and a friend popped around and she said oh I had a miscarriage I didn't find it that bad. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, I don't know if I can cope with you today. But genuinely, that was her experience. And similarly, when my dad died, we'd had a lot of sort of grief moving up to it. He'd been ill. I was expecting it. And I can remember events in my life that should be smaller, but have felt bigger. Because perhaps in that moment, I wasn't expecting them or I didn't have the wherewithal to cope with them. So it comes back to quantifying grief, doesn't it? We can't do that. We can't. We can't. We can't make a judgment call about it. And the and the worst, in fact, I think probably the worst thing that we can do is to try and quantify somebody's grief, because actually what that does is dismiss it. And I don't think that people actually mean to do that. So, I mean, that would be probably the most important thing that I would say to somebody. Don't assume your understanding and your experiences and your expectations are the same as the other person's. I want to expand that a little bit in terms of there is this, I don't know whether you have this conversation in the UK, but in Australia, there's this sort of conversation about um, disability. I have a disability and I am exploring wheelchairs at this point in time. And a lot of people are oh my goodness me, that's terrible. Oh, you poor thing, that's awful. Whereas I'm like, oh my goodness me, no, you've got to be kidding me. That means that I can get around Ikea without feeling exhausted, you know. Um, And a lot of people in the disability sector here, it's like, don't call me brave. Don't call me, this is just, this is it. Don't pity me because I'm in a wheelchair. This is actually a functional assistive piece of technology that actually allows me to do whatever I want to do and gives me freedom. And so there is a big discussion about just because you as a person can't imagine what it would be like to be in a wheelchair, don't imagine that it's actually the case for the other person. Yet I would want to say that person is trying, they're trying to be empathetic. So do you think tip two could be there's a place for curiosity if you're not sure lean in and say gosh how does that make you feel yeah so there's this person in my circle who is has cerebral palsy and she's in a wheelchair and my little one was like really interested in her in the wheelchair and he just went up to her and said so why are you in a wheelchair and she said oh because I've got cerebral palsy and he's like what's that and she said oh it's because of x y and z and blah 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 and then they had this whole conversation about biology and mechanics and cerebral palsy and all of those kinds of things 
And she said, oh gosh, it's, it's great. When kids ask, she said, they just ask you. They just want to know. They're just curious. And I think as we grow up, you know, we're told, oh, sh- don't ask them that. You yeah. can't ask that question. It's like, well, actually, yes, you can. Come at it with the right heart, as you're saying, the right attitude and the right motivation. Then actually asking the question is perfectly fine. Mm. And I think it can be helpful in these situations to arm yourself with one-liners. It doesn't mean to say that you're being insincere. It just means that you're equipped when those moments crop up or if you know that one's coming with something at the ready so that you don't freeze in that moment. Mm. For example, with the person with the wheelchair, how are you feeling about that? Or for someone who's lost somebody, I'm so sorry for your loss. Mm. And then just pause and you'll see from their face whether or not they want to talk about it. Yeah. And Harry, that's not to say for a second that I think I've got all the answers, but I have learned over time that having a one liner up your sleeve just helps you not to freeze in those moments. And by the same token, wouldn't you agree, actually, as the grieving person, have a ready line for those moments when you're caught off guard. And it might simply be something like, thank you so much for caring. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And then there could be an uncomfortable pause. But the point is, you've said your part. They've said their part. You've had connection. That's going to be far more comfortable in the long run, isn't it? Yeah. Than having said nothing at all. And just moving on slightly, whilst we're on the topic of being empathic to others, there is something called secondhand trauma, isn't there? Oh, yeah, we call it vicarious trauma. Oh, okay. So tell us about that. So vicarious trauma, the only risk factor for somebody developing vicarious trauma is to have observed and witnessed somebody's trauma. And so it's, it's got nothing to do with how strong you are or how, you know, you're, how experienced you are. But if you have held space for somebody's trauma, then you are at risk of vicarious trauma. And so other people call it burnout, but I actually don't think that that's a a good term for it. I am very concerned right now for the vicarious trauma um, that all of the medical people, staff, are going to be experiencing once they're out of this crisis. I know in Australia, Really, the most of Australia has been bad, but in Victoria, certainly where in the the outbreak that they had in the middle of last year that took so long to get under control, those doctors and nurses and paramedics were really experiencing it. And in Australia, we're now at a point where they can breathe. And that's where I'm worried that the vicarious trauma is going to hit. I'm very concerned that in the UK and in the US, at the moment, they're still in crisis. And so they're just they're running on adrenaline. But at some point that is going to stop once this vaccine has gone through and they've got space to breathe, that this is going to impact on them for a very long time. And I'm very concerned that we don't have the mental health professionals in the different nations that need it in order to be able to hold space for the people who will be experiencing vicarious trauma. And and vicarious trauma sort of hits in, in really different ways. What we actually do is we, one of the things that we can do is we actually start to avoid doing stuff without thinking about it, because we're trying to protect ourselves from the trauma. And for me, personally, one of my little things is that I actually won't wear clothes from secondhand clothes or from from a charity shop. And I think a lot of my friends think it's because I'm a snob 
but it's actually not. I love a bargain just as much as everybody else, but I don't want to wear somebody else's story. And so for me, that's the thing that I absolutely can't do. Now, other people may think that's ridiculous, you know, and that's totally fine. I totally get it, but that's my vicarious trauma space. And so, you know, for people who have experienced trauma, I worry about the doctors and nurses right now and their families who are living on edge now for month after month after month. And I'm very concerned that for those people, I mean, for mine, you know, look, it's easy. I don't wear somebody else's clothes, not a really big deal. But for other people, vicarious trauma can actually be very limiting, you know, in, and people can develop all sorts of quite complex trauma responses themselves from that space. So we really have to be very aware of our own vicarious trauma and we have to really look after ourselves. And so, and, and, and again, the way that we look after ourselves, what one person does may not work for another person. So it's actually very personal. So one of my team has been walking a lot and she started walking during COVID and things like that and for her that is absolutely her space where she's in nature that's her well-being space where she's caring for herself and managing her mental health that would not work for me at all because walking is not easy for me so we can't actually just say oh we'll go and do this you know, for, for me, massages are great. And so I have a fortnightly massage. For other people, massages would be ugh, awful. So we have to really look after ourselves. And we have to look after the people around us. Mm, that's so true. So how do we recognise vicarious trauma in ourselves? Yeah, so what happens is, well, there, there's a few warning signs. So it might be, I actually can't hear any more of that. I can't listen to your story. I can't be empathic. So that that's a warning sign. When we start feeling like I really can't hear another story, we're already there. If we um, maybe have some sort of quite cynical responses to things, we might be there. If we find ourselves avoiding things that we otherwise would do, so that's also a warning sign. And if you find that you've lost your spark, you're not finding enjoyment in things that you used to find enjoyment in, those are all warning signs. And how does that differ from compassion fatigue? Uh, they're the same. Vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, burnout, all of those things, they're all different terms for essentially the same thing. And that's the moment, isn't it? Like I call it the aeroplane moment when you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that I'm aware of at the moment in Australia, the moment I think that there is survivor guilt. In Australia, we've had a very easy run of things. And we are seeing, I am seeing, like I am finding myself in this situation where I am looking in horror at what is happening in the UK and the US. So I've got friends and family in both the UK and the US. I'm very concerned for them. We have come through this relatively unscathed. We've had less than a thousand deaths. Yeah, you have come away relatively unscathed, haven't you? It's, yeah, the toll's been much higher here. And it's going to be an adjustment for us all as we slowly come out. I don't think there's going to be a day when someone clicks their fingers and it's all over. And some people will take longer to adjust than others. I think in a funny sort of way, some people are going to find it harder to come out of lockdown 
than just to stay in the safety of their own homes. Yeah. Let's talk briefly about how differently children and adults grieve. I know that. Oh, yeah. And one wise person said once that children puddle jump and adults go through a river. Do you think that's true? Actually, I think that's a really great description. Yes, I think they do. I mean, in one breath, children can be saying, why did Dumper die? And then in the same breath, they can say, have you seen my colouring pens? Kids seem to be able to jump in and out of the intensity of it all, don't they? Yeah, they absolutely can. And I see it with the boys as well. I think that children take on board what they can take on board and then they move to something else. And it's very developmental, you know, around their, you know, different ages. It's not because they are not thinking about that person and not grieving, but they only have capacity to do it bit at a time. Whereas adults can see the whole picture. Kids can see a little bit at a time. And in fact, I have been amazed in quite recently by Tristan, who was four when his dad died. And he doesn't really have a clear recollection of his dad dying, you know, or in fact, a clear recollection of his dad at all. But one night there, we were over dinner last week, I think, and his older brother said something. And Tristan came, you know, to annoy him and Tristan came back with, well, it's okay for you. Dad didn't die 19 days before your birthday. And you remember dad and I don't. And it actually had nothing to do with whatever the argument was about. And I was like, wow, he has worked out that his birthday was 19 days after Tim died. He had no idea at the time, but he, it sat with him. And I think what he's been doing is he's been processing it as he can. He's processing experiences and his grief developmentally. And I think that's what children do. And so it grows with them. And I think that's a really hard thing for adults to get their heads around because adults experience everything about the grief, about the loss, a holus bolus in all of its context, whereas children take it bit by bit as they can understand it, which means that they're growing with their loss, and do which you, is why they do that puddle jump thing. Yes. And do you think that as adults, as parents, when our children are experiencing loss, one of the things that we can be worried about is if I lean into their loss, their tears will never end. I think a lot of parents worry that, worry about that, definitely. The bigger risk, though, is that they children don't have permission to express the loss and to cry. It's actually the bigger risk. Even if their tears didn't end... I would be more concerned about a child who wasn't crying, who didn't feel that they had permission to cry, that who felt that they needed to be okay for mum and dad. I mean, it's a really huge thing that parents want to protect their children because they love them. It's all coming from a really good space, but we can't protect our children from this. They have to, they ha they have to experience it. In fact, you build more resilience in them in the long term, don't you, if you allow them to experience it? Absolutely. I'm asked on many occasions about what I think about children going to funerals. And by and large, I'm absolutely in support of children going to funerals. I think it's really important that they do. But what I also say is 
but have somebody at the funeral who is not so directly involved, who knows the children, who can actually be the child's person on that day because it's actually unlikely to be the mum and dad. Yes, yeah, so true. That is brilliant advice. And also, do you think another form of guilt is feeling any form of joy whatsoever at all? I mean, you can experience grief and joy in the same season, can't you? Oh, absolutely. They're not mutually exclusive. You know, sadness and joy are not mutually exclusive. We can celebrate and grieve at the same time. Just to be able to delight in the in the person, you know, and or in you know whatever it might be. So you know, for me, you know, the idea of a wheelchair, for example, you know. I could grieve that my legs don't work particularly well, but actually I'm quite excited about, I've seen this wheelchair that's really excellent. And I'm like, I'm quite excited about that. And the kids here, we've been talking about it because I've wanted, it has taken me quite a while to get my head around it. But, you know, now that I'm there, I'm there. And the kids, you know, when I was talking to the kids about it, they were like, oh, can I ride on it? And I was like, no, it's mine. You can ride your bike and I'm going to race you down the street, you know. And so, and I said to them, I said to one of the older boys a bit like, I said, are you a bit concerned about me being in a wheelchair? Is that going to be embarrassing for you? And they were like, no, I think it's cool. And I think also the other thing is that people often, when there has been some significant loss, whatever it might be, often people will feel guilty about enjoying something, whatever it might be. It's like, oh gosh, you know, I'm I'm grieving, whatever it might be. I shouldn't really feel joy or or delight or whatever it might be. But actually, it's all part of being human. And I think it's the authentic human experience to be able to have joy and sadness at the same time. My son, Tom, he interviewed John Glenn recently, who directed a lot of the Bond movies. And John said to him, just make sure that after you've had a sadness in a movie, you give people an opportunity to laugh because it's the way of releasing that intensity. Mm. And I think that that's being real. Mm. And I think authenticity is so important, isn't it? And different friends bring different Mm. things. I remember when I had my accident and I lost my teeth and had to have some reconstructive surgery. Mm. And during the the healing process, certainly in the first few days, my lip was just way out here. I just looked like a monster. Mm. And one of my friends came around and she came up to visit me. I was in bed and she just cried. And I needed that. I needed her to authenticate my grief. Mm. Mm. Then came around. She looked at me and she goes, budge up, stop milking it. <laughs> she got it. <laughs> <laughs> she was cheeky, wasn't she? But on a more serious note, there are a number of different emotions that we can expect or expect others to have around grief, aren't there? I remember when my dad died last year, a friend of ours gave me a kind of group of emotions and said, You'll probably experience all of these, but not necessarily in that order. And I found that quite releasing because you often hear people talk about the Kubler-Ross grief cycle as though there's some kind of mechanical cycle that we all have to go through. But for me, I oscillate and I found that quite liberating because I did experience those in the same day. So I need to set the record straight really clearly for everybody that Kubler-Ross's work was on death and dying. It was not on loss and grief. It's a model of death and dying for the person who is dying, not for the people around them. And it's been misappropriated. And so, and it's become this sort of 
myth, really. So I never, ever talk about the stages or the cycle of grief, ever. There is no cycle. There are no stages of grief. There are emotions that we experience, but we can experience, everybody experiences different emotions. As I've said before, emotions are neither right nor wrong. They just are an expression of our experience. But when you think about it in terms of dying, it's the sort of stages of things like shock, denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance. That makes more sense than somebody who's grieving. Because when do you get to acceptance? You actually don't. Because as we said at the beginning of this this chat, this person is not coming back. But wouldn't you say, you know, whether you're grieving a person or an experience that you've lost or, you know, disappointment or or whatever, or any of the things that we were talking about earlier, that you do get to a place of accepting that your life will never be the same again? I'm not suggesting that you resolve it, but I think of acceptance as finding that place where you know you've got to live with it. Mm, Yeah. And I think if that's, yeah, if that makes sense for you, that's absolutely valid. Um, Oh, that felt really patronising. Is that your way of saying you don't agree? No, 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 it's not my, no, it is actually, no, 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 it is in terms of it's valid because that's your experience of it. It's not up to me to to say yes or no because that's your experience of it. It's a, it and so that's absolutely valid. But if somebody didn't agree with it and they had a different, it's like, well, that's valid too. So it's not about judgment. It's about somebody's experience and actually respecting their experience. So yeah, no, it wasn't at all about sort of me you know, disagreeing with that. Because in fact, that's actually a new way that I've heard acceptance being talked about. And it's like, oh, actually, that is completely true. So what I found really helpful about that group of words he gave me was that you don't always expect all of them. I mean, I probably did because it wasn't my first experience of grief. But certainly when I did have my first experience of grief, I wasn't expecting anger, for example. But that can come up really quickly, can't it? Oh, I think it can. Um, It really can. And my sister was furious about, you know, Tim dying. Absolutely furious. She still is. With him? No, just with the situation. So when my grandfather died, albeit not of his own choosing, he died of myelofibrosis, I remember being furious with him for leaving. Mm. And I imagine a number of people have been taken by surprise by that emotion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the outward expression of the the loss that they're, they're feeling. And so we ended where we started. Grief is the outward expression of the loss that a person is feeling. And that takes many forms. But it seems to me that so much of the healing happens in community. Having our feelings accepted and validated being supported, supporting others, taking things at their own speed. I like to say grief beats to its own drum. It seems to have its own timing. We can't rush it, we can't avoid it, but we can be kind to ourselves and we can learn what others need too. I learned so much from this. I learned so much from this 
And I think one of the perceptions of mine that I'm going to revisit is the concept that busyness is avoidance of some sort. I've always been a little bit suspicious of people who get very busy, but perhaps I need to see that that's an outward expression of loss. I hope you've found some gold in there too. I'm sure you have. And Harrod's book will be out later this year, at which point I'll give it a shout out so that you can grab your copy. You can find Ang Harrod Candlin on LinkedIn, Facebook or at the Australian Parenting Centre, all of which, of course, are in the show notes. And me, you can find me everywhere. If you want to chat about your child or family life, do drop me an email. Similarly, if you'd like to book a consultation, see the show notes for some details. Pop to Instagram and you'll find little one minute wonders. I love some of the positive feedback from those little tips. So basically, the Courageous Mama on the blog, Instagram, podcast and Gmail. I look forward to hearing from you. We drop every Tuesday. I'll see you next week. Thank you.